This is the Made It in Music podcast. I'm Seth Mosley, and this is Show 141. Welcome to the podcast, where we bring you tools and resources to help you go full-time in music and to stay in. The music business is a roller coaster ride, changing faster than any of us can pay attention to. We all need a competitive edge to stay ahead and to stay successful. What's working, what isn't, and what's coming? That's exactly what this show is all about. Back again with Full Circle Music, the Made It in Music podcast. Hello to all of you who are pursuing this music industry journey with us. We are so glad to have you along. And when it comes to planning this podcast, we try and make sure that our guests are pretty diverse based on backgrounds and perspectives. But sometimes it's easy to forget just how vast the music industry really is. To be honest, there are quite a few careers still and genres that we haven't yet had on the podcast, and we are indeed working to fix some of that. And today, we're bringing on someone to talk about a topic that we've never touched before in the history of this podcast, which is interesting because this is actually a massive part of the music industry as a whole. And of course, if you read the title for this episode, then you know that I am talking about composing for film and TV. Now, composing for film and TV is a very different concept than what we would traditionally think of as, quote, sync, where songwriters typically write a song and then hope that it gets placed in some sort of media, but it could potentially work in a few different projects instead of being specifically created for just one film in mind. Composing, in this sense, is where you actually write the score for the music itself. Think someone like John Williams or Hans Zimmer. That is what we're going to dive into today. Our guest is Leo Bierenberg, who has worked on big-budget films like Kung Fu Panda and Cobra Kai. If you have ever wanted to learn more about composition or how the film industry ties in with the music industry, then this is going to be a really interesting episode, so let's dive in. We're on the Made It Music podcast with my new friend all the way from Santa Monica, California, Leo Bierenberg. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. I, I got to be honest, it's a little different for me. We normally, I'm normally sitting across from a live human being. So this is the first time doing an interview like this. So, Oh, wow. Thank you, technology. I just want to thank yeah, technology. Yeah, I feel so like cutting edge. <laughs> which is not normally how i would describe myself <laughs> leo berenberg cutting edge that's your that's yep. your slogan what is the uh what is the weather in nashville right now the weather oh man i, I wish i could tell you i'm sitting in a studio well, i'm trying to, i gotta get in the mood because you know it's 80 degrees it was here. actually really nice when i poked my head out for about half a second earlier Definitely not 80. It was probably more like 58, um, but nice and and sunny. All right. Tried to uh, fly a kite last night with my daughter. Wow. How how old is she? She's four. And um, I I wish I could say that worked. It didn't work super well. You know uh, what? Kites are hard. Like the whole like I get that whole Charlie Brown having trouble thing i've only tried i've only tried to go kiting if that's a verb like kiting two or three times two or three times in my life probably and i'm pretty sure i failed every single time <laughs> yeah we've yet to succeed so not windy enough but uh yeah. i imagine in santa monica you'd have you have a little of the ocean breeze we do get we do get a nice breeze yeah for our audience who maybe isn't familiar with who you are, Leo Berenberg is a film score composer known for his work in Kung Fu Panda, Cobra Kai, and Tig Tone on Adult Swim. 
Uh, man, congrats on all your success. Thank you. I'd love to just hear a little bit of your story of how, how did you, like, what was the moment that music impacted you for the first time? And then walk us through maybe the steps that you took once you knew that music was something you knew that it was something you wanted to do. How did you pursue it and how did it lead to where you are today? Yeah, there's like, there's kind of two parts to that. There was like the me being interested in music and the me being interested in film. And then they kind of naturally intersected, which worked out really well for me. Uh, Music wise, you know, I was not like a kid who played instruments from a super early age. I, I took some piano lessons. Like we had a electric keyboard in the house and I took piano lessons probably around age like eight or nine. And I hated it. Like didn't practice. God, I regret that now. So like, you know, I quit after maybe a year and a half, which, you know, learned all the keys and, you know, kind of knew what I was doing, but I went, uh, the, the school district that I went to, basically every school district I went to, all public schools from, you know, fifth grade through high school had, were like really intense music programs, you know, as intense as you could have for a public school, like just very comprehensive uh, coursework and, you know, good funding and a lot of interest from the community and like that type of thing. So I'm, I'm very pro music in schools, as I would hope everyone on this show is in fifth grade was like when band started and so, or orchestra and they, they gave every kid an opportunity to like go into the band room and they had every instrument set up in there and they were like, pick them up, see which one you want to play. And like, whichever one sounds good to you, like you get to play in the band type of thing. And people's parents would come and like, you know, sit with them while their like kid played clarinet or like, you know, Sometimes the parents would like helicopter around to like make their kid pick violin or whatnot. But my mom likes to tell this super like romanticized story about how I just went down the line of every instrument and picked it up and could not play them all, but could like immediately make a noise and like play them as a fifth grader can on like every single one. And I guess since I had some kind of natural aptitude, when I said I wanted to play the saxophone, they let me play the saxophone, which was like a big deal because everyone wanted to play the saxophone. So like they only picked like six people probably. So I don't know. I guess I just kind of had a natural music bug and it just needed that little experience of like picking up an instrument to find it. From like fifth grade through high school, I was a total band geek playing saxophone. I was really into jazz, did jazz band, you know, every year. My high school had super intense music program. I think my senior year of high school, I was in like our wind ensemble, a jazz ensemble, and we had like four of each kind, wind ensemble, jazz ensemble, um, and two choirs. And that was like half my school day. So it was like, uh, you know, as close to like a conservatory as you can get to in high school, you know, public high school. Parallel to all that, I was very interested in musical theater and was like in a couple shows uh, starting in, I want to say like seventh grade. So, you know, I was singing all the time, taking voice lessons, doing uh, musical theater and our jazz program as a part of that. Like you kind of had to also, if you were a saxophone player, learn clarinet or flute in the way that saxophone players have to. So, you know, by the time I was like a sophomore in high school, I had like two different saxophones and a clarinet and a flute and like 
voice lessons all on my plate and I was like practicing all of them every day, which honestly oversells my ability now. I never <laughs> play any of them <laughs> anymore. But uh, yeah, there, I, I guess I just kind of had like a natural interest in it and in an environment that was able to nurture it. And uh, that is how I became interested in music. Yeah. So when people get interested, there's a lot of different paths that you can take towards making it into a career. Why did you choose the path of film composing over, say, being an artist or being in a band or right. working on the business side? You know, as I was ending high school, I just started to realize I, I couldn't tell you exactly what the moment was, but there was a point where I just realized I preferred pulling the strings like a puppet master and deciding what was going to happen in the music behind the, the scenes more than actually like performing it. And for me, that very much came in the context of this like jazz program in my high school where like I was playing saxophone all the time, but you know, we had this awesome uh, program director who would who was constantly bringing in like guest artists who were like composers and like playing their original charts or just like sourcing. You know, it wasn't just like straight ahead jazz. We were we were playing a lot of cool stuff from like across the spectrum. And like for people who are familiar with that world, like big band music nowadays is like really cool. And sometimes there's no saxophones at all. And it's all this like very like impressionist, like flute and clarinet stuff. And like, there's a, there's a whole color palette there. And I guess I just got more and more interested in like the kind of how things were built and colored and started to try to find charts in the, in the, our like giant music library there that I would want the band to play. And sometimes me and my friends would just get together and like look through them or play through them. And so somewhere in there, as I was like deciding what I wanted to study in college, I, I just realized that it's for me, it's more fun to write it than it is to play it. And then, but there, there was a long chunk of time where I was just like, you know what, I'm going to go to college and like study economics or history or something. And like, this was my high school life. But I do specifically remember one day when I woke up, like right after submitting all of my college applications, where I just woke up one day and stared at the ceiling and was like, dude, what are you doing? You have to go study music. Why wouldn't you do that? And I went downstairs, rewrote all my college applications in like one furious, like, you know, four hour thing. And I had really liked NYU a lot when I visited there just because I like the city vibe. So uh, applied there to study music theory and composition and was accepted and went that route. Um, how I ended up in film and TV well, actually kind of continuation of that story, but it starts like when I was five, I think like many five-year-olds, I was just completely obsessed with Star Wars. And I think I wanted, like, if you had asked five-year-old me what I wanted to be when I grew up, it would probably have been like, I want to be Steven Spielberg type of thing. I want to be George Lucas type of thing. I spent a large chunk of my unstructured childhood, like making movies with my friends. And this was like back when iMovie first came out. So we were like very cutting edge with our like uploading footage in there and finding fun ways to like creatively problem solve and like build in special effects like before that was a thing that you could like do. 
or like making stop motion videos out of Legos. And then, you know, that was just like what I liked to do as a kid and put it to the side, focused on music. But I showed up at NYU and on day one, I meet one of my roommates who was a film major or going to be a film major. And uh, we formed a fast friendship. And a couple weeks later, he was like, hey, I just had to make this movie for my class. Like, do you want to write music for it? And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I'll write music for it. And I would, at the time I was studying in music theory, like our basic music theory class, like something about like serial music and like 20th century, like 12 tone rows. So I just wrote this like ridiculous, super dissonant, super, super like, I I mean, it's God awful. It's like what you do when you like read a textbook and then are like, oh, I'm going to just do what the textbook says and like, you know, write something that does not really sound like music. And I remember I had no music production ability whatsoever. So I just wrote it all out in Sibelius and then like exported like the MIDI as like an audio file from whatever sound set that came with. And then we just put it up to picture and like that was it. That was my first first film score. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Know, but the, but the, the great end to that story is uh, that guy, my friend Jeremy – lives in LA. We're still best friends. And, uh, he just produced a movie that I scored last year and it's going to be at the Tribeca film festival. That's amazing. We've come a long way from, from that. It sounds like it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have to, uh, find a link to that if it lives online anywhere. (laughs) Oh yeah. Actually, I really should dig that up because it's, it's great. That's amazing. So once you pick this path, from what I know of you, there were kind of two phases, if you want to call them that, of your career, just looking through your IMDB yeah. page and seeing some of the things that you've been involved in. Can you maybe take us through, yeah, what was what was phase one and then what was phase two, which is kind of where you're at now? Yeah, totally. So I finished NYU. I did this program. I applied to this program at USC uh, here in Los Angeles that is is very focused in film and tv music specifically and it's a very like production heavy type of program just a one-year thing it's one of those like graduate programs where it's very embedded in the industry so it's like a get a job type of program i did that hoping to like make some connections and you know land on move to la and like find a way to land on my feet so to speak and kind of through that i met a guy who's an orchestrator and conductor, his name's Tim Davies, who I actually met in high school through that. He is a big band composer uh, amongst his many jobs. And uh, I actually met him because he came to my high school and we played some of his music back in that jazz program I was describing and kind of reconnected with him because he was an alumni of this program. And at the time he was looking for someone to like intern for him because he had a lot of stuff and just needed someone to like proofread some sheet music or like set up some files. So I started going over to his place, you know, once a week, then became twice a week, then became four times a week during my year in that program and uh, working with him on, I, I don't even remember what they were at the time, but a couple of video games and TV shows that he was orchestrating on and conducting. And through him, he conducted and orchestrated for a pretty big like a-list film composer named Christoph Beck and Chris's longtime assistant was taking a break to go get married he was taking like a couple months off and Chris was in the middle of a lot of stuff and he kind of needed someone to come in and 
be his assistant for the time. And so Tim introduced me and I ended up taking that job and then never left. So for the next, I guess I started that in, in kind of summer of 2011 and I was working for Chris as, you know, I say assistant apprentice is probably a better word for, you know, four to five years, four and a half years there. And, uh, you know, that can mean that's, that's a very common arrangement in town. Like composers have assistants. I'm sure it's similar in Nashville and the music scene in Nashville. Like there is a lot of stuff that needs doing, uh, a lot of which that doesn't have to do with music and is much more technical. A lot of which has to do with like logistics and a lot of which has to do with like music. Cause there's a lot of music to write in the world when you are, working on a TV show or working on a movie where there's just like tons of stuff that needs doing and tons of stuff that needs revising. And so I was his sort of Jack of all trades assistant who started out getting coffee and, you know, would the tasks I would have on my plate would slowly increase and increase and increase from, you know, helping book a recording session to kind of produce the recording session to write some music or revise some music that he had written, you know, once it had notes from the director to uh, write some music based on some themes that he had worked out earlier to just write some music. We have a lot going on, pick something, do, you know, take a stab at it to, you know, much more organized, like you do this, I'll do this kind of thing. And it was great. It was great. He's the nicest guy in the world. I'm really good friends with him still. And so for, you know, four or five years there, we had a nice run where we did, you know, Chris, I did some huge movies. Um, he, for some background, he, his first huge thing he did was Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the day. So he has like a cult following amongst Buffy fans. But then, uh, you know, he's like a major figure on the kind of studio movie circuit doing a ton of like, uh, you know, he did the Hangover movies he did uh, a lot of comedies for a while. And when I started working for him, we did a couple of Muppets movies that Disney made in the last few years. Uh, we did the third Hangover movie, uh, Hot Tub Time Machine, Hot Tub Time Machine 2, a couple indie movies. Uh, the big one we did was Frozen, which turned out to be a huge deal. Uh, we did this cool Tom Cruise movie called Edge of Tomorrow, which is like highly underrated, I think. Everyone should see it. Uh, we did Ant-Man. It was a really busy time. And we, you know, there were constantly one or two or three things going on at the same time in that building. Yeah. I, uh, I got to ask you about Frozen because I have a four-year-old yeah. daughter. Yeah. What What was that like at the time? What was your kind of involvement in that? What was, did you guys have a feeling like it was going to be a big thing or do you just, is it kind of no, like you just never know? The, that's the crazy. I mean, I think everyone knew like, I would say what we were all really impressed with at the time was kind of how that movie takes a new spin on the princess story and is much more about like sisters than it is about like, oh my God, this prince is here. And I think all of us thought like that was awesome at the time. And that was a great new emotional territory for Disney to tackle. And I think that's why it became what it is. The, at the time... You know, I feel like we didn't think it was that much different than any other movie that we were working on. It's It was a lot of fun to work on because Disney just has kind of like a great 
creative atmosphere where, you know, their philosophy in a lot of ways is like hire people who know what they're doing and then like give them creative wiggle room to like present their ideas. And so I know, I know Chris would say the same thing. It was, it was just so fun to work on because we could come up with ideas and like pitch them, you know, musically. And it, you know, sometimes you work on a movie and like, they just want what was in their tent music or they just, they, you know, they have like a really specific idea what they want and they're going to like try to get that out of you, which is sometimes a really good thing. It's not always the most enjoyable thing. And frozen was just like a very creative process. So can you talk a little bit about just again, no listener left behind, yeah. What are the stages? Like you talked about temp music and then there's the final thing. Sure. Is there, is there, are there more stages than that? Sure. Like, yeah. Maybe Greg this, walk, this, walk us through that. This applies to uh, film and TV. I guess I will describe it as if it's a movie. Cause I think it's a little more digestible. So they shoot the movie. Usually a composer doesn't start until they're in post-production. Sometimes you will read about like, Hans Zimmer writes all this music and then hands it off to Christopher Nolan and he plays it on set to get everyone in the mood. That happens too. But like in terms of like musical logistics, like the job really starts after they're done shooting. Once they start editing, we call that the cutting room. Uh, So they open their cutting room and they put together like a director's cut and somewhere in there they'll hire a composer and the director, producer, editor, composer, uh, music supervisor who is kind of the person in charge of licensing stuff and sometimes has a more kind of executive oversight, <gasps> excuse me, we'll all get in a room and do what we call spot the movie. We have a spotting session and that can take a few different forms, but essentially you watch the movie down and you hit stop whenever someone thinks there should be music or wherever there is music frequently the editor while working or the music editor whose job it is who well whose job can be a million different things but one of them can be cutting in what we call a temp score into the the film as they're editing and say you know they might be working on something and say we need you know something some pulse here something with some tension here to like help us figure out our edit or maybe they want to show it to in a screening to people, but they don't have a composer yet. So they've cut together this temp score. So what, so what, is, what is the temp score? Is that, is that somebody sitting there with it? Like these cheesy keyboard sounds or is it like, no, it, it's usually other film music frequently. Like, you know, they'll just grab whatever's in their iTunes library or whatever thing they heard on Spotify last week that they think is cool or, you know, whatever. A lot of times, from a composer point of view, it can feel very random and capricious. Like what ends up is the temp score. It might just be, Oh wow. I saw this movie last week and I loved that score. Let's try cutting some of that in seeing how that works. So, you know, it can kind of just, it can be anything. A lot of times, you know, if you, if you go into spot like a Marvel movie, there's probably some other Marvel movie score cues in there. Cause they, you know, it's about making it sound so it'll sound like it'll sound pretty finished. It's just not the finished thing. Exactly. Cause it's not anything original. Yeah. And a lot of times if you've done, if you've written some music beforehand, that will get incorporated in the temp score. And then that starts to kind of build you a shape. But at the end of this spotting meeting, you'll basically have kind of like a list of every 
you know, music start and stop in the movie broken up in reels. Sometimes like movies, a lot of time are structured in like six different reels that are about 20 minutes each. And, uh, you know, from there you just kind of take your pick and start writing what you think is the best idea to start writing first. Some people like to write in order and just start at the top and maybe write the first reel. It's probably, you know, a couple cues in there. We, we call individual music starts cues. And then you get together and have a meeting and go over that. Uh, sometimes I won't write in order and I'll just write like what seems like a key thematic scene first. So they can, like if, if there seems to be a spot where it's like, oh, this is our main character and this is uh, her main scene and there's like an emotional turning point here, like this should be kind of where this theme is going to fully blossom. So let's figure that out first and then we'll work backwards and how can we plant that seed here and plant that seed here. So there's different philosophies of how to do it. Everyone, I think, kind of has their own thing. And I think every, uh, every project's a little different on how you approach it structurally. But once you have an amount of music that's worth talking about, I uh, sometimes send it over for people to listen to. Uh, or sometimes I'll just say, hey, come to my studio. Either way, I say, hey, come to my studio. Sometimes you send it beforehand. Uh, and then you sit down and you watch together uh, in a dark room, like in a, as hopefully cinematic as a feeling as possible, or theatrical a experience as possible. And then you just discuss it. And that's you know, it's a really collaborative process doing film and TV. You're constantly talking with the director and the editor and the producer about the tone and the ideas and the structure. And I think kind of how successful you are making a good film score comes from kind of how open your dialogues are and, you know, how, how good at that creative dialogue everybody involved is. I want to come back to this discussion a little more, but I want to continue down the path of your career as a composer. So if that was all phase one, what is phase two and how did you enter into that? Well, phase two, I guess, started when uh, some guys I know, some friends who I had worked with on a web series. While I was working for Chris, I was always kind of doing stuff for friends of mine who may, you know, coming from NYU and then USC, like I knew a lot of young filmmakers and they would make shorts or like web series. This is when web series kind of started to take off. I feel like in like, you know, 2009, 2010, 2011. And so I would go home and, you know, on my computer at home, like write music for friends who were making things like that. And a couple of friends of mine made a web series that would prove to be pretty popular Um, and so they got offered to make a TV show for comedy central. It's called big time in Hollywood, Florida. It's a very cinematic show. They wanted like original music for the whole thing. Uh, so they called me up and asked me if I would do it. So it was a time when we were like finishing some projects at Chris's. So I left to strike out on my own, did that show for a couple months and then it didn't come out for a few months later. So I actually went back to Chris did like two more movies with him in the interim. Then that show came out and someone emailed me through my website, still the only website email I think I've ever actually gotten. (laughs) Um, And it said like, hey, I loved that show you did on Comedy Central. I'm making this pilot for this show for Fox. Do you want to score it? And I was like, "Uh, yes, please. So uh, that 
pilot ended up becoming this Fox show I did called Son of Zorn. And since then, I have just done my own thing and gone from one TV job to another and film job, like both, all, all of the above. Uh, and so those kind of two were my launching point where I stopped working for Chris and just started working on my own. And I guess that was in like 2014 and 2015. Both of those shows got canceled. May they rest in peace. Uh, first thing to learn about Hollywood is that happens a lot. But uh, yeah, I just kind of, one thing led to another after that. And like the phone has kind of always been ringing since then for one thing or another. That's awesome, man. Can you, can you walk us through that stage? It's, it sounds a little bit like the journey of somebody who maybe has, and I, this probably isn't even a great analogy for it, but it's the closest thing I can come up with. But going right. from somebody who has a stable nine to five job, if that was your time with yeah. Beck, like versus going out on your own, what did that feel like at the time? Was that a big leap or was it kind of just a natural, like I've already got all this work lined up and it just makes well, sense? it was a big leap, especially insofar as the fact that like that first Comedy Central show paid like no money. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to work on this for six months and lose money and work on it around the clock and just make it as good as I possibly could make it. I tend to work just like a lot. I like, I'm a bit of a workaholic. So they, to me, the only difference between the like nine to five structure and doing my own thing is just that like, I might mix up what crazy hours I work at. So like, you know, when I start working on my own, I might like wake up in the morning, do some work and then kind of take the afternoon off and go to the gym and then work from like 6 PM to three in the morning and then do it again the next day. But, uh, you know, I, the, the thing about my experience working with Chris is we did so many movies and so many different styles that since leaving there, I've never felt that like daunted by any particular job. Like they come and I feel like a sense of like confidence and fluency and being like, like even with those first shows, which like, obviously I was stressed about being like, wow, this is my first thing. Like, what if I F it up? What if I like, I want to, that like, I knew how to do it. Like every time I loaded up the picture and would start writing, I was like, I've, I've done something like this before. I know how to do this type of scene. I know how to do this type of this style. Um, which is great. Those are the building block. It's like playing your scales when you're like, you know, learning an instrument, you got to master that stuff and then kind of never think about it. So you can actually be creative and do, you know, what you want to do. That's like write something cool. That's awesome. So what was the path leading up to, you know, some of your biggest work with like Kung Fu Panda? Like how, yeah. how does something like that come about? Well, somewhere I got to, I got to think about like the last three years now, the somewhere in there after, well, I guess around the time I did Son of Zorn, I did Another show with a buddy of mine who I still work with on Cobra Kai, his name is Zach Robinson. Uh, I met him because he also worked for Chris. Uh, and then we both left there. And then we had this opportunity to work on this show called Sing It, which is was kind of like a YouTube original series in their like first generation of trying to do that kind of like content. The job involved a lot of song producing, like covers of pop songs that they had licensed 
the publishing to, and then there were people singing them on screen. And so we had to do all these covers in like different styles of these, like, you know, Backstreet Boys songs or whatever. And right around that period of those two shows doing one and then the other, you know, I, I got an agent who, and that kind of thing just sort of happened in a very natural way. Like met a guy who's an agent and I was at a point where I kind of needed someone to be talking about the money with the people who wanted to hire me. So like, you know, the goal is you never want to talk about the money yourself. You just want to tell your clients like, yes, always like, yeah, I mean, Oh, I love it. And then, you know, if your agent says like, Oh, hold up, he can't do that. He's the bad guy. You know, is that, is that kind of the role or the route that you've taken in your career to never have any of those discussions, always keep it creative. That's the goal. It it happens because you're the one on the ground. And especially with like smaller projects, you're doing an indie film. Like it's much easier to do not so much negotiate for yourself, but you want to be able to talk to your collaborators and friends. Like, Hey, I think you guys should set aside this much money based on what you were talking about the score to be so that we can, you know, record an orchestra here or there, or like, you know, you said you like that thing that had cello, like we should bring this cello player in. So like, you know, set aside a little money for us to do that type of thing. Like you want to be able to have those discussions without it being awkward, but you never want to, it's always my goal to never kind of say no to anything because of an awkward money conversation. Like that's like the dirty work for an agent to do in my mind. But like, it's not like things necessarily change that much when you get an agent. It's just kind of like, someone else who's in your corner in a lot of ways. But one thing it does allow is you just start to hear about other projects like coming through the pipeline. And so, you know, did Son of Zorn and kind of through the, I guess I can't, Kung Fu Panda, I wrote a demo for because they, you know, it's a DreamWorks thing and they reached out to my agent, I think, and said, hey, do you know anyone who's, we've got... I, I had demoed for other shows of theirs and this one, they said, Hey, we've got this show coming up. Like we're looking for people to like spec for it. Cause we have kind of like an original concept to the music. That's a little different from the movies. Do you know anyone? He sent it to me and said like, Hey, does this sound like your jam? I was like, yeah, that does sound like my jam. Hold myself up for a couple days. Wrote like a very extravagant demo. That is the style of that show is like, spaghetti western meets like chinese traditional music meets like kind of cinematic orchestra meets some like grew like b kung fu movie funk from like the 1970s type of thing and so i just kind of like was creative for a week and submitted it and they liked it sent me some scenes to score did that got hired on it spent all of last year doing it did 26 episodes you know do every two weeks basically so I, I may have lost track of where what question I was answering. No, but. no, it's great. I, I think we're kind of we're kind of circling around the question of like getting work, getting your foot in the door. Um, and you sort of talked a little bit about the role that maybe your agent plays in it. But even before you get an agent, you have to obviously prove yourself, you know, worthy of working with an agent yeah. in the first place. Well, yeah. Ultimately, the way you get work is by meeting people who make stuff that need music. And I think that's the most important thing. I think people sometimes like move to L.A. and they want to do film music and they think like, oh, I got to get an agent or like, oh, I got to get manager or I got to get or like I got to go work for 
some big composer. And like, those are all important steps. And, you know, I think in my example, working for a big composer worked out really well for me, though. I don't think that's the only way you have to do things. But the, the one thing that you just need to do is know people who make stuff and like make friends with filmmakers, make friends with editors, make friends with people who work on studio lots and go hang out with them, have lunch with them. Like, like not in a superficial way, like, you know, this is LA, like chances are your friends probably work in the film industry and like collaborate with your friends. Like that I think is the, you know, the approach that everyone should be taking. And if, you know, then you get recommended for a job where they're, you know, you're working with someone new who's not your friends, like your goal should be to make them your friends. Like I, I love to like, I always want to be like, have as much fun as possible with everyone I work with. I think that's the, that's why we do this. That's like why this job is awesome. You know, you get like, it's like an overlay of like social network and a job and you get to work on it all together. And I think that to be successful, you just want to be constantly collaborating with people who are on your level making stuff. Can you talk a little bit about as, as we're wrapping up, you really hit the nail on the head. It's the answer to getting in and getting work. Isn't necessarily getting an agent. It's, it's, making relationships with people who are making stuff. So if you had one piece of advice to leave people with who are maybe wanting to be where you are or to do something similar, how do you go about meeting the people who are making stuff or the gatekeepers, so to speak? Well, for for me, I guess my biggest advice would be uh, be roommates with a, a film major in college. It worked out for me, worked out for, uh, there's a couple like high profile ones right now. The, uh, with, uh, Damien Chazelle, who's the director of, uh, La La Land, like the composer on that, Justin Hurwitz, like, I think they were roommates or they were like best friends in college. And, uh, uh, Ludwig Gorenson, who just won the Oscar for Black Panther, you know, he started working with Ryan Coogler at, at, uh, USC. And I don't know if they ever lived together, but they were like good friends. And, worked on every project together and uh they went from being like independent films to being giant studio marvel films and so you know you shouldn't be like looking like just make friends with people who make stuff who share similar interests to you i don't think the you know the advice i would never give is like don't force it like find people who you want to be friends with and then just start making stuff with them I would say like go as so far as to like get embedded on the filmmaking side. Like if they're making something and they need an extra hand on set to hold a microphone or like watch the truck, like go hang out on set. Like you want to understand like as much about filmmaking as possible. So you can speak that language. Like I find it's much easier. Like when we're in that spotting meeting, I was describing people aren't talking about music and music terms. There's never like, usually it's not going well if if someone is sitting there saying like oh maybe we do some like minor type piece here or like you know what if you go to the four chord on that shot of like the girl's face like that's useless you want to talk about like emotional weight and storytelling and filmmaking techniques like because that's the language that filmmakers speak and that's the language that ordinary people speak and so you want to learn as much about that as possible. Like I always say, like, 
the job here is music, but really you're a filmmaker. You're a department on a film. Just your pencil of execution happens to be music. But like you're making a movie. Every decision you make should be in the service of a movie. And so like go watch movies, like go hang out on film sets, meet everybody in the industry that you can. Like the key is to like speak fluently about film. I think that's so good. So as, as we're closing out, uh, we're going to dive into our lightning round. Are you ready? Oh, Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. We'll see. Hopefully this coffee has warmed me up. (laughs) All right. We're going to start with a, uh, I don't know, maybe an easy one, maybe a hard one. We'll see. Favorite movie score. Ooh, that changes a lot. That's changed a lot in throughout my life. So I'm just going to rattle off a couple that I love. Love the Godfather, uh, by, uh, Nina Rota. Love. I love the movie and the score. Catch me if you can. It's John Williams. It's very kind of like mid century jazz influenced, uh, orchestral piece. I, I think that movie's amazing. I love a huge influence for me, you know, when I was like 13 was the scores to Lord of the Rings. I love those movies because I love those books. Like I have a Tolkien tattoo on my arm. I used to read them with my dad when I was in like kindergarten. So like I was like obsessed with those movies when they came out and the scores are amazing and have this very kind of like thematic, like leitmotif based approach to like scoring a film that ended up being a, just a big music influence for me outside of film. Like when I got to college, I got really into opera and started listening to a ton of like Wagner, which is the same kind of like big, dark, moody development on simple themes to tell your story. Like basically having kind of like a mythology there to, to like execute through music. And so that, that was a huge influence for me. That's awesome. It's good. Yeah. Favorite software instrument. Oh, okay. Or are you like a purist that's like, I don't use software instruments. If it's, if it's not the real thing, don't, I, I don't do it. No, no, no. I use actually probably 98% software instruments um, because uh, we didn't really actually talk about this. This might be a good spot to sidebar for, you know, three minutes uh, and talk about like what a setup is like for a point over here off screen. To let's do that. Let's do that as our deep dive. Okay. Most instruments I use are in contact in my template. Uh, I don't use the contact like library a lot, but uh, there are some great orchestral instruments made by this company, Spitfire Audio. Um, there are actually, there's this company I discovered. I'm going to give a, a plug for a company. I have I have no idea who they are, where they're based or anything. They're called Performance Sampling. And they have this amazing choir library that they call Oceana that is currently a favorite of mine. It, it just sounds incredible, like sonically. Uh, I uh, it, It's kind of software, but on the most recent season of Cobra Kai, I found this dude in Ohio who like programs custom patches for wind controllers. And so I bought like a Yamaha sound bank, like that he had reloaded up with all of his custom like additions. And I've been playing it on my Iwi over there in the corner to get all these like retro pan flute sounds for, uh, for that show. So that's pretty fun. That's awesome. 
Yeah. I, I love it. And yeah, as I mentioned, we'll, we'll do a little deep dive postscript. If people want to know about your setup that you're using, yeah. they, can, they can just go to madeitinmusic.com, go to the show notes. We'll have the video that's a deep dive right there so they can hear about awesome. what your setup is. Awesome. Going through our lightning round. Lightning round. Favorite LA meeting spot? Meeting spot. There is a taco restaurant called Escuela Taqueria. It is right in the middle of the city uh, by the Grove, which is kind of this like fancy mall thing. So it's very easy to get to for everyone. This place is amazing. The Branzino Taco in particular is great. I have had business meetings there. I have had not business meetings there. I have had dates there. I have had birthday parties there. I've seen Johnny Depp there. Like there is no, like it is, can be crowded because it's popular for dinner, but not in like a loud boisterous way, just in like a, you might have to wait 10 minutes type of thing for lunch. It's wide open. I don't think I've ever had a meeting there. They didn't go exceptionally well because the tacos and the guacamole are so good. And you're, we are obsessed with tacos in Los Angeles. So like, you know, if you find a spot, you cling to it. All right. Well, I'm going to check it out next time I'm out there. Yeah. How many instruments do you play? I lost track a while ago, but it depends on what you define as play. I I, like I can pretty much play Mary Had a Little Lamb on like anything that's not always useful. But, you know, that's what it is of things that I can that I actually will like record myself on if I'm in the middle of something saxophone clarinet flute guitar hurts my fingers but i'm pretty good at ukulele uh or like uh because i got good at ukulele i bought a tenor guitar with like four strings which is much more manageable for me um but you know if i need to strum some chords i can do that on the on the actual thing i am really into irish flute like penny whistle and low whistle uh i think because when i stopped practicing like saxophone and clarinet I just wanted something laying around that I could pick up and like play all the time. And so you can't see it, but like on the other side of this computer is just like a ton of like whistles of various kinds. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then last lightning round question, best piece of advice ever given to you? Ever given to me. I feel like I have a great answer to this. That is not on the tip of my tongue. Probably just, I couldn't tell you who said it, but it was drummed into me at USC from several sources, either my orchestrator intern boss, Tim, or, uh, you know, later from Chris or from like professors at USC, but like, just say yes to everything, especially when, what else are you going to do? Like you, you moved to LA, you want to get involved in something like just say yes. It does not matter if you are qualified to do it or not. Like, Usually every day people ask me for music I've never written before, like whether it's like, you know, 19th century New Orleans polka or like Bach or like right Hawaiian thing. If you understand musical building blocks and you're interested in it, you'll figure out how to get it done. So just say yes and do it. And like it's practice. I love it. That's that's a great piece yeah. of advice. So how can people find you, interact with you, social media, website, all of that good stuff? Yeah, uh, you can check out my website, www.leobierenberg.com. There's, uh, I'm pretty good at updating that with uh, new projects and uh, as they come out, some music from those projects. 
you can find me on Twitter at Leo Virenberg. Uh, tweet at me. Honestly, I need people to tweet at me because I, I go through lulls of using Twitter because I'm like bad at interacting with strangers. <laughs> so I, I need some practice. Uh, you can hit me up on Instagram. Also, at Leo Bierenberg. Someone hit me up last week about this show that just came out that I did called Pen15 to ask about a piece of music in it. So, you know, slide into my DMs. I'll answer questions. I love it. Well, thanks for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you for hanging out with us on this episode. And if you are sad that it is over, well, don't be. You don't need to be sad because there is indeed more content that you can access if you want to. We recorded a deep dive with Leo where we talk about his composition setup. What tools does he use? As a film composer, what are some of the most important things he's invested in? And what gear could he not live without? If you are interested in hearing the answers, then you should absolutely head over to, you guessed it, madeitinmusic.com. If you haven't signed up for any of our free deep dives yet, you can do that right on the homepage of madeitinmusic.com. Or if you've already signed up for the deep dives previously, then you can go right to your members area and Leo's new deep dive will be right there ready and available for you. Speaking of checking out more content, I love audio podcasts. They're great. You can pretty much listen to them whenever and wherever. But did you know that we do way more than just audio for this podcast? Every single episode for season two is professionally filmed, and they're up on our YouTube channel. So if you're curious to visually see this interview or any of our other podcast episodes, then head over to fullcirclemusic.com slash YouTube. Again, that's fullcirclemusic.com slash YouTube. And that will take you right to our YouTube channel where you can check out the video version of this episode and so much more content over there. As we close out this podcast, I want to thank Jericho Scroggins for his work editing these podcasts, and I would like to thank X O'Connor for his work creating the videos for these podcasts. Both of you guys do a phenomenal job, and I now want to end this episode with a song along the theme of film and TV colliding with the music industry. We want to share a song that was recently put out by one of our own writers, Riley Friesen, with his group Club Danger. This track is called Living Legend.